Let's go to John chapter 18 this morning. As we are going through the gospel according to John on Sunday mornings, we are now at the place where Jesus is betrayed and then arrested. Last week we watched as Judas Iscariot gathered a band of men which was made up of a Roman cohort, officers of the chief priest, and Pharisees. And what that means is this mob which comes to arrest Jesus is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And it likely numbered well into the hundreds. And it's interesting how religious Jewish leadership was so prejudiced against the Gentiles when it came to religious observance. But they gladly united with the Gentiles against Christ. Isn't it interesting how Christ is the dividing point? The Jews wanted to be delivered out from under Gentile rule, and yet they will go through the Gentile system to deliver themselves of the Christ who came to deliver them. What we see in this mob which comes against Christ is that Jesus was despised by all, both Jew and Gentile. And this thought may not mean a whole lot to you this morning as an American Christian, but religious Jews today believe and teach that the New Testament is an anti-Semitic book. But it most certainly is not. Romans 3.9 tells us that both Jew and Gentiles are all under sin. Romans 3.19 says that all the world may be guilty before God. I've never watched the movie. I wouldn't necessarily advocate you do it. But I know when The Passion of the Christ came out many years ago, Mel Gibson was labeled as anti-Semitic. He may be, he may not. But one of the reasons why that observation was made was because apparently in the movie, when the mob comes to Jesus, it's just the religious Jews that come and not the whole Roman cohort. So I just find that interesting. And I think it's worth pointing out here that this is not anti-Semitism. We were all under sin. We're all guilty. We all despise the Lord. Come on now. So it may not mean much to you, but I want you to know that because it may mean that to some. And so as we study the events here in this chapter and the next chapter of the crucifixion and all that surrounds this, it's not, we're not watching as the Jews snuff out Christ. We're not watching as Gentiles kill Christ. But get this. We are watching as Jesus willingly lays down His life for us. He's the perfect Lamb of God who shed His blood to redeem all of mankind. And yes, the Jews betrayed Christ. They put into motion this sham of a trial we're going to see eventually where Jesus will stand before both Jew and Gentile. And yes, the Romans nailed Him to the cross. But Christ willingly gave His life a ransom for many. He willingly laid down His life. The Bible says in John 10, 18, Jesus speaking of Himself, He says, He's speaking about His own life. He says, No man taketh it from Me, but I lay it down of Myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. 
And Judas brings this band of men to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and His disciples often met together to have sweet fellowship in time of prayer. It was a sacred place where Judas betrays the Son of Man with a kiss. And Judas, who was one of the twelve, is now standing with the crowd in verse 5. And I didn't really get into all of this last week. But I want you to understand this morning, there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. You are either in Christ or you are in the crowd this morning. And that will make the difference between heaven and hell. Remember that Jesus knew all things which should come upon Him. And He asked the mob, Whom seek ye? And they answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. To which Jesus replies, I am He. And upon hearing Jesus say this, the crowd goes backwards and they fall to the ground. Now how about that? Listen, if you go to arrest somebody and you say, are you the one we're looking for? And they, he says, yes I am, and you fall over? That's a pretty good indication that you might want to rethink your tactics. <laughs> Remember in this account, we see how Jesus is in complete control. He is all-powerful, and He is even very merciful. He could have destroyed these men, but He doesn't. And I believe it could be that Jesus is giving them space to repent as they observe the events that will unfold. I know if I would have been one who took part in that arrest, I would probably be tuned into the trial. I probably want to know what's going on. And it could be Jesus, He's merciful to these men and not destroying them because what's going to happen over time is they're going to watch this trial. They're going to see Jesus die on a cross and then they're going to hear, wait a minute, the tomb is empty. And then they're going to, they're going to watch as Peter here, for example, who will flee. On the day of Pentecost, He's going to preach. And 3,000 men will be saved. He'll have this boldness about him. He's no longer scared of the mob. But he preaches Christ. And maybe some of these men who took place in, in this arrest, they'll look at all the events that unfolded and they'll conclude, truly this man was the Son of God. What a merciful Savior. Amen? Amen. Well, after the mob goes backwards and falls to the ground, one would think they would rethink their approach. But they don't. They repeat the process again, and Jesus asks, Whom seek ye? I'd like to know how he said that. I would have said it with a little bit of a swagger at that point. Amen. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. This brings us to where we left off last week. And so if you'll look with me, please, let's read verses 8 through 12 of John chapter 18. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon, Peter having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Let's begin with the second half of verse 8 where Jesus says, if, ye therefore seek, if therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. 
Matthew Henry wrote this about that statement. He speaks this as a command to them rather than a contract with them. You see, Jesus isn't making a deal with them here. He isn't saying that if you'll just take me and let these go free, we won't have any problems. Jesus here is letting them know how this is going to go down. He's in complete control. I have to keep saying that. And there's a lot of opinions here to what is meant by this statement by Christ. I want to give you just a few here. Just some things to consider. First of all, we see in verse 9 the reason why this statement is given in verse 8. It says there in verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. We saw a very similar statement made by Christ when we were studying chapter 17 in verse 12. And over there, I believe the context is Jesus saying that I'm not going to lose any soul that is given to me. You're secure, you're safe, your salvation is secure, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. But I believe here the context is Jesus also preserves their physical life. And isn't it a comfort to know that as long as we are walking with the Lord in the light of what has been revealed to us, that He is ordering our steps, He is directing our life, He knows the day of our death, and nothing will interrupt that. That's a comfort to know. And I would venture that most, if not all Christians, would say, Amen, that's right. God watches over me and He knows the day that I'm going to die and, and, and He's in control of my natural life as well and I'm kept by the power of God. Most would say amen to that, but I believe many don't live that in practice. I was crunching numbers earlier this week as I prepare for the end of the year. And we are still averaging 43 less people every Sunday morning since COVID-19 hit our area. Now, don't worry, I'm not going there. But I will ask in the light of our text, listen now. What does it say about our faith when we believe the Lord can save us and keep us, and yet we don't have faith to believe that the Lord will call us home when He's ready? Even through a pandemic. Does He keep us or not? Well, next, I believe we see how God will not test us above that we are able to bear. He's going to protect us physically. He's going to protect us spiritually. Listen, He's got this, and He's not going to put us in a situation that is above what we're able to handle. These were great men in that they had left all to follow the Lord. They have followed Him now for three and a half years. But they were still weak when it came to the faith. They still had a lot to learn which is going to be evident because they end up fleeing. I'll cover that here in just a minute. They all end up fleeing the scene. This wasn't their hour. They would have their work to do after Jesus ascended to heaven. They would be charged to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. And they would also have a day in which they would suffer themselves. But this was not their time. This is an important observation to make. Because had these disciples suffered along with Jesus, then you can bet somebody would teach you that your salvation is dependent upon your suffering as well. Had they followed along, had they been arrested, had they been taken into custody and tried and crucified, somebody would make the argument that this means you are saved because you are suffering for the Lord. 
there's already Catholics doing that. Listen, I'm not again, I'm just telling you the truth. That's how it is. You'll watch when Holy Week comes next year, you watch over in the Philippines, somebody will be crucified. It won't be the same manner in which Christ was, but they'll nail themselves to a cross, believing that somehow their sufferings will earn the merit of God. There'll be those who will get upon their knees and they will literally walk upon their knees, crawl upon their knees to wherever they're heading so that they can get all scarred up and and hurt, believing that somehow that penance is going to be pleasing in God's sight and that He's going to smile upon that. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus goes at this alone because He's the only one who can save us. And it's not about what we can do. It's not about how much we can suffer. Don't worry, the Bible says all that live godly shall suffer persecution. But it is not intended for our salvation. This is Jesus' hour. He has to go through this alone. And listen, the Bible is clear that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus has to go alone. There's none other who could save us. And there would be no doubt in Christ going forward by Himself, that He alone is the author of our salvation. That He alone is the finisher of our faith. That we added nothing to salvation whatsoever. It's not about your works. It's not about your church membership. It's not about helping Granny cross the road. It's about what Jesus Christ did for you upon the cross of Calvary. There's a lot more we could bring out here, but just one more thought from verse 8 before we move on. When Jesus allows Himself to be arrested while His disciples go free, we get a picture of our redemption. We get to go free because Christ went to the cross for us. Jesus said, take me. These go free. And isn't that our salvation? He carried my burden. The cross that He carried bore my burdens. The nails that held Him set me free. As the precious, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. There's a song we don't sing it often, but it's called My Plea, and it says, My sins, they are many, my virtues are few. The blood of my Savior will carry me through. When Christ in my place died on Calvary's tree, hallelujah, that opened God's heaven for me. All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. John 10.15, As the Father knoweth Me, even so I the Father, and I lay down My life for the sheep. John 15.13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. What a blessing today that my eternal destination will never be in jeopardy, because Christ took my place and He let me go free. He took our sufferings upon Himself. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And understand that these events which are unfolding, it's not victory of evil over righteousness. It may look that way, but this is victory of righteousness over evil. 
And we may not understand all that's taking place in the world today. It may not make a whole lot of sense. But I can guarantee you when all is said and done, it'll be righteousness getting the victory over evil. Whoop! There was nobody who could have forced Jesus to the cross that night. He willingly went. All the might of the earth could not have forced Him there. And yet if He was determined to go, one little girl could lead Him by the hand there. And all these pieces of information we read about in John, we read about in the other Gospels, they're all there to remind us as a permanent reminder of how Jesus willingly went in our place. Well, after Jesus tells the mob to let His disciples go their way, there was one who just couldn't help himself. And it's none other than Peter. Ready? Fire, aim. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And notice how that's written there. It says that he smote the high priest's servant, comma, and cut off his right ear. He wasn't intending to cut off his right ear. He wanted to split his head open like a canoe. He was intending to kill Malchus. I don't believe for a second he was aiming for his ear. Peter was a fisherman and not a swordsman. I think Peter was just inexperienced with the sword, or Malchus was just quick enough to move a little bit to where it only caught his ear. Whatever the case, Peter intended to take his life. And again, if we just think about this logically, we see how Jesus had to have been in complete control of this situation. I want you to imagine the powder keg that was about to go off that night. Just think about how tense it would have been. Earlier this year, you may have seen footage of two groups of people. I remember seeing it down at Stone Mountain, Georgia. I always tune into Stone Mountain, Georgia because that's where me and Suge met. And so there at Stone Mountain, Georgia, there was this group of armed men and this group of armed men standing across from each other. And I just kept thinking, boy, one greasy trigger finger, and it's going to be a bloodbath. One itchy trigger finger. And we saw stuff like that throughout our country. Very tense times where it would seem like all it would take was one bad move and it'd be worse than rioting and looting. And here's a mob, likely of several hundred armed men. They come against 12 men, one of those being Jesus. And certainly it would have been a tense moment. And one would think that one wrong move would set this thing off. And sure enough, it's Peter that makes that move. He cuts off Malchus's ear. And don't you reckon that by Peter doing this, it was enough for the crowd to justify a retaliation against them and take them out? But they don't react that way. What prevented this mob from going forward and taking them out? Well, for one, let's not forget that they just went backwards and fell to the ground. It's hard to understand, but maybe deep down they understood, wait a minute, this guy has more power than maybe we thought he did. And you may wonder, how could they get back up and still go forward with this? I read one guy gave this opinion. Well, it could be that they would just claim that Jesus did that by the power of Beelzebub. 
that it wasn't God's power, but it was Satan working through him. And yet they don't react, they don't fight back. What is preventing this? I believe the supreme power of Christ kept these men from killing His disciples. And at this point, Peter had definitely given them reason to retaliate. And I know you may be grown tired of me saying this so far through this chapter, but let me just say again. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus commanded them in verse 8, let these go their way. And even after Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, the crowd doesn't move to kill Peter. They don't even try to arrest him. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, this is remarkable. And they may not have been putting it all together in that moment, but listen, this crowd couldn't help but obey what Christ was going to say and do. Now, I want to consider, why does Peter do this? Why does he cut off this man's ear? I reckon Peter felt he had something to prove. I believe he's acting out of pride in verse 10. Remember the conversation that Jesus and Peter had back in chapter 13. Over there in verses 37 and 38 it says, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And over in Luke's account in chapter 22 and verse 33, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Even though Jesus had foretold of Peter's denial, Peter didn't want to believe that he was capable of denying the one that he had faithfully followed these past three and a half years. And so Peter, willing to demonstrate that he was in fact willing to go to prison, that he was ready to lay down his life for Christ, he draws a sword and he takes a shot at the high priest's servant. And many times, many times we have zeal, but not according to knowledge. And we end up reacting independent from God and His will. And we think we're really doing God a service, but we're not. And sometimes it can be hard to just wait and trust God's ways, His timing, and His promises. Remember, Jesus had already told these men, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And He will be crucified. And He'll rise again. Now, I'm not suggesting I would have done any better than Peter. But we have to learn to give space to God and allow Him to work out His plan in our lives. It's great to have zeal, but only if it's accompanied with knowledge. And we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble when we move out of zeal and not out of knowledge. The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. Did you get that? Because that's going to be the focus here. The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. And so in verse 11, Jesus steps in and He says to Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus essentially says to Peter, Look, nothing's going to interfere with me doing the Father's will. I'm going to, the, I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink. 
And I believe at this point it's beneficial if we think about what some of the other gospel accounts say in what's taking place right here because we get more information. For one, after Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, Luke tells us that Jesus touches Malchus's ear and heals it. Did you hear what I said? He healed it by touching. Listen, if you're going to arrest somebody and the man reaches out and heals an ear just by touching it, that's a tip-off that he might be divine. And you might want to go, huh, wait a minute. Did I just see what I think I saw? That's not normal. In Matthew's account, Jesus says to Peter, and I believe He says it to Peter, but also for the mob listening, and now for us reading, over in Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54, He says this, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that this it must be? You see, Jesus didn't need Peter wildly throwing a sword around. He doesn't need Peter standing in his defense. Jesus had legions of angels at His disposal if He so chose. And I want us to see today, and this is going to be the the real emphasis of the message, Peter had yet to come to terms with who who he really was. Peter had yet to come to terms with who he really was. But he will throughout this chapter, we'll see. Over in Matthew 26, again, verses 55 and 56, it says, In that same hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. You see, many who react out of zeal come to learn soon after that they are not who they thought they were. Peter's bravery quickly turns to cowardice. And it's only going to get worse for Peter this night. You see, the process of being broken is not an easy one. But it is necessary if we are to learn who we really are and if we want to go on and be used by God. We must be reduced to nothing by God if we are ever to do something for God. He must increase and I must decrease. And sadly, many reject God's process of breaking them down. And they never go on to serve honorably in the service of our Lord. I think about the military process. It used to be, I don't know that it is anymore, because I was trying to show my son footage of basic training, and it looked pretty soft to me. It used to be, I told Luke, Luke, you're going to have no problem, amen. I raised you harder than that. But it used to be the idea was the military wanted to bring you in, they wanted to break you down, and they wanted to build you back up in their image so they could use you for their service. Unfortunately, there's always some in the group that refuse to conform. 
and they're let go on the basis of failure to conform. Some are dumb enough to go AWOL. You do that, you go to jail. But anyway, listen now, there have been many young men who have had the zeal to enter the ministry only to learn they are not who they think they are. There have been many young women who have had the zeal for God's will in their life only to learn it's far more difficult than they could have ever imagined. And they flee. These are the ones who never want to listen to wisdom. They never want to listen to their spiritual counselors, the spiritual authorities in their life. They don't seek advice. They don't want advice. Nobody can tell them what to do. They act as if they have it all together and they march forward with zeal, but they do it without knowledge. They think they have it all together because they went to their seminary, they blessed them, they ordained them, they sent them to the field, they've never worked a day in their life, and they get there and they quickly understand the ministry's hard work. And they leave. What God has to do is break us. And what happens is people who go forward with zeal without knowledge, they've never, they have never come to see who they really are in Christ. Peter didn't listen to Jesus. Peter had to be broken in order that he would learn who he really was in his flesh. And we all have to learn this. God has to break the power of our pride before He can greatly use any. And if they aren't broken early in life, they become these prideful adults who always want to prove they have it all together no matter the situation. And they wield their sword around for all to see to try and prove how spiritual they are that they will never forsake their Lord. But if you could see the heart you would see that God is working inside of them to break them down, to see who they really are, because He wants to use them for greater works one day. Jesus didn't want Peter to be a physical foot soldier. He wanted Peter to be a spiritual soldier. He didn't want Peter using a physical sword upon this life, but He wanted Peter to take the spiritual sword and wield it for God. And before God could use Peter on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 men would be saved, Peter had to be broken down. And we'll see before this chapter is over how Peter became completely broken. I'd imagine you've heard me give my testimony several times by now. But I can remember how God used our time in Minot, North Dakota to fully break me down. I would have told you I was already broken. I'd already been preaching for years. But I didn't know myself as well as the Lord knows me. Do you hear what I'm saying? And it was there in the frozen fields of Minot, North Dakota that God brought me face to face with who I really am. I didn't like it. And I knew more clearly than I ever knew before that in me that is in my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. Have you come to that place yet? 
Are you broken? Can God use you or are you fighting the process? God wants to break you down so that He can build you back up, conform you into the image of His Son so that you can be used for His service. There are always those who are rejecting the process. And here's why. It's not fun being broken. Ask those who have been through certain types of training. And listen, it's painful at times. And so people will flee when the going gets tough. And many never return to be greatly used by God and serve Him honorably. And I want to encourage you this morning. Allow God to keep breaking you down. That He might build you back up. You may be zealous of good works, which is great. I believe it's even needful. Peter wrote about God had has a holy nation of peculiar people that are zealous of good works. There's nothing wrong with having that zeal for good works, but do you have knowledge? Do you know who you are this morning? Listen, if you're not saved, you've never been born again, you don't know yet. You haven't been broken to the point to see who you really are without Christ. And some of you are in Christ, and maybe you still haven't learned who you really are when it comes to how you serve the Lord. Let God add knowledge to your zeal. And then God can use you for His glory. God is a refiner. He's like a a consuming fire. And when they refine gold, they warm it up and the dross comes to the top and they scrape it off. And God wants to burn us and heat us up and break us so that all that pride and all that filth and all that junk can come to the top and our Lord can scrape it out so that we might come forth as gold. He wants to make you into what He wants you to be. Don't fight the process, but give yourself to it. Let's pray.